So we're in Galatians. Open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians. It is right after Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. There are Bibles in the back. You go get one if you want one. Uh, Not a problem. Just go back there and grab one uh, in the back on that back wall. We're in Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, take it home with you. It's our gift to you. We want everyone to have the word of God. And as we get into Galatians, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 6 this morning. Let me give you a quick update on some context, okay? So this epistle, the epistle of of Galatia, uh, was uh, Paul's first penned letter. Probably somewhere around 48 or 49 AD, right before the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. We're going to get into that in another day, but right before that. He was writing to the churches in the city and the regions of modern-day Turkey of Galatia that were birthed, that God had formed during Paul's first missionary journey. You'll read about it in chapter 13 and 14. We're going to look at it in a minute, actually, as well. So Galatia is, and i got a picture here for you. Um, whoop, let me go back. So there's Syria, Judea. Let me get this here. Here's Judea, Jerusalem. So you come up, and Galatia's in here. See the word Galatia right there. So it is northwest of Jerusalem. Now, what's important for you to know is that there's two uh, cities. Let me see if I get on this one here. called Antioch. One is Antioch. Oh, it's not really here. One is Antioch, and one is Antioch Pisidia, which we're going to be looking at today. Um, So here again, here is uh, Asia and the Galatian area, okay? So this is on Paul's first missionary journey. Paul goes through the city of Galatia, and he's planting churches, right? He's actually making disciples, and churches are being planted by God's grace. Now, What's important to understand in this book is that as many people come to faith in Jesus Christ and churches are being raised up by God, people known as the Judaizer, they were Jewish people who claimed to be Christians, began to come into the cities. I think there were some there already, but they began to teach in the cities that young followers, this young church, these young believers of Christ, these Christ followers, needed to adhere to the law of Moses, the Torah, the five books of Moses, in order to be a Christian. In other words, you have to be a faithful Jew in order to be a faithful Christ follower. And the initial rite or ceremony into becoming a faithful Jew in order to be a faithful Christian is the ceremony of circumcision, the rite of circumcision, which is a sign of the Old Testament covenant. I'm not agreeing with it. You're going to see very strong words against it. But I can understand you're a Jew. You grow up. You raise Covenant, 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 circumcision, and they were adding this rite, this ritual, to faith in Jesus Christ. And now before Paul vehemently and somewhat angrily opposes these false teachers who are adding the Mosaic law to faith in Jesus Christ, before he, 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 he launches into the attack against them, he establishes his apostolic authority and lays out his apostolic message in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He does so because, this is context, because these false teachers who were teaching that you have to adhere to the law of Moses to be a faithful Christian were questioning Paul's authority as an apostle and therefore questioning his message as authoritative as well. They were saying, you know, things like, you're a Johnny-come-lately apostle. All the other apostles were were around with Jesus, had walked with Jesus. That's, that's what you need to be an apostle. Yeah, but you, you're a Johnny-come-lately. You, you came to know Jesus after his resurrection from the grave. Paul recognizes that he is not in the same 
has the same calling, the same commission exactly as the other apostles. In the book of Corinthians, he calls himself the last and the least of the apostles, untimely born, because he came to faith by meeting the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. We'll look at that next week. So he begins this letter asserting that his apostolic authority, his apostolic calling came, look at verse one, not from man or through man, but from God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And then look what it says in verse four about Jesus. It says this, Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. What Paul is doing right up front is not only declaring the importance of the message of the gospel, but he's going directly against the false teachers, the Judaizers, what they were teaching about the gospel. You see what he says in verse 4, that we are helpless people that don't need more teaching, that don't ultimately need a teacher or some moral example on how you can live and how you should live that God may accept you, but we need to be rescued. That's what he says in verse 4. We need to have a deliverer. Religious teachers come to teach you the way. Jesus Christ came to be the way. Jesus Christ came to not be ultimately a teacher, although he was the best, greatest teacher in the world has ever seen, but he came to be the rescuer of a helpless condition, our helpless condition. Romans 5, 9. Very clear. Our sin has made us an enemy of God. We are hostile towards him. God is holy. We are sinful. Romans 5, 9 says, we've been justified by his blood. How much more will we, will we be saved from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, he says, much more. Now that we're reconciled, we'll be saved from his life. So Paul starts out right in verse four saying, listen, it's not about God throwing you a rope. It's not like God sees us drowning in our sin and alienated from him, enemies of him, and he throws us this rope and we do everything we can and we grab this rope and he yanks us up. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul says we were helpless. We need a deliverer. And how does that happen? Look at verse four again. Jesus Christ died for our sins. That word for is on behalf of, in place of. Paul is starting right out showing the radical reality of the gospel that it's substitutionary. It's not about keeping the law. It's about Christ who died in our place. It's not about you getting your act together. It's not about you following a certain way. It's not about you grabbing onto that rope. It's about you being rescued from God. Snatched. And delivered. And therefore, Paul is saying, if God would ask something from you, catch this. If God were to ask something for you for payment from your sin, for your sins. If God required something for us to do for the sins in which Jesus already died for, he would be asking for two payments for the same sin, which is wicked and unjust. Because the false teacher, and this is why it's so important. Because the false teachers in, a, in, the, in his day, and some teach it today, but the false teachers in his day who claim that you are justified by faith in Christ, his work on the cross, and by works, 
in essence, is saying that Jesus' atoning death and resurrection from the grave may be nice and may be true, but it's not enough. It's not enough to justify someone. Remember we said the word justify. The word justification, very important biblical word. Declaring someone to be right, to be just, to be vindicated in the courtroom. There's two sides to that. Remember we said one is you're forgiven. Jesus dies and, and on the cross and forgives the debt of our sin. On the other side of the coin is he imputes his righteous life to us. He's the only one who lived a righteous life. He's the only one who obeyed the law perfectly. And by faith, we are forgiven of our sins because Jesus died and he imputes, counts toward our record, his righteousness. That's what it means to be justified, to be made right with God. And whenever you and I or any teacher add anything to the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work on the cross, you've departed from the truth, Paul would say, and of the gospel and you're not only cursed, damned, as the scripture will see, but you're leading others into damnation by adding to the gospel. So with Paul's apostolic calling, his authority of the message in which he gets from God in the first five verses, listen to now verses 6 through 10, the infallible authoritative word of God. Now I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there is some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Verse 11, for I, have, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Simple outline. I'm going to spend most time on the, on the point one. The desertion from the gospel. The motivation for the gospel, verses 10 verse 10, and then finally we'll end up with the revelation of the gospel, verse 11 and 12, which is just the beginning of it. We'll look at it more next week. So that's where we're at. Look at me first at verse 6. I'm having trouble with my iPad. That's why I keep looking up. Okay, keeps going up and down. All right, look at the desertion. Now, Paul begins in verse 6, not like he does in other letters. Usually he'll give a greeting. Hey, this is Paul. Grace and peace to you. I'm so glad to hear of your faith in, in Jesus Christ. I'm praying for you. We love you. I love you. You love me. It's all good. Not here. I'm astonished. Thumazo, marveled, amazed, astounded, surprised, even a little agitated. He's amazed. That these, these, this young church, these, these churches, and it's not just any church. These, these are churches that Paul labored over. That Paul served and cared for and, and discipled and, and proclaimed the gospel. There's a, there's a personal connection 
with these churches that he labeled over. He, he said, I'm expecting more from you. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13, just for a moment. If you haven't read chapters uh, 13 and 14 of, of Acts uh, in his first missionary journey, I, I do it this week. It gives some insight into what Paul could be feeling and thinking as remembering his first missionary journeys. He writes these to these young church, like, stop listening to those people. So if you just go to chapter 13, just for a minute, just a couple of things. He's in Antioch, Pisidia, okay? Look at chapter 13, verse 44. He had just preached the gospel, the, the first part of the chapter. Um, they, they, were, they urged him to come back, to continue. Look at verse 43, chapter 13, verse 43. They urged him to continue in the grace of God, this grace of God. Next Sabbath, the whole city came together, verse 44. Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what Paul was telling them, reviling him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. It is necessary that the word of God spoken first to you, to the Jewish people, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the the Gentiles. Go down to verse 48. The Gentiles hear the word. What are they doing? They're rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. Many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, there's a healing, which is an apostolic sign. He's in Iconium, which is again part of Galatia. They entered together in the synagogue. A number of Jews and Greeks believed, verse 1. But the unbelievers stirred up, uh, 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 unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds, verse 3. Chapter 14, so they remained for a long time, listen, speaking boldly for the Lord and bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders done by their hands. Again, apostolic sign. Go down to verse 8. They're in Lystra. All in, this is all in Galatia. They're in Lystra. A man sitting crippled. Listen to Paul speak, verse 9. Paul looks at him. Seeing they had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand up your feet, and he's healed. Go down to verse 19. <laughs> this, this is great. So he's still in Lystra, right? His man is healed. Jews come from Antioch. That's a different Antioch. And Iconium, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul, as I like to say, not with a bong, with rocks, and dragged them out of the city. Suppose that he was dead. But the disciples gathered him. He rose up entered the city, and on the next day he went to, with Barnabas to Derby. Now look at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, now they're going back. They went on inverse missionary journey, grace of God, rejoicing, people getting saved. Now they're going back, Iconium, Lystra, strengthening, verse 22 of chapter 14, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's his first missionary journey. Christ is enough. There's grace. He's, he, he, he died for sins, he preached in chapter 13. It, it, we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. He'll make that very clear. If you go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 is kind of the, the heart of the, of the book. We know that a person is not justified, vindicated, made right, forgiven of their sins, imputed righteousness by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul is like, now what's going on? (laughs) What the heck happened with you guys? It was a great trip. Sinners are getting saved. Miracles performed. Churches are, are planted. I am beside myself. How quickly, see that in verse 6? How quickly you departed from that. You had received the gospel with joy and gladness. Now you quickly, that word means rashly. And interesting enough, and I think every commentary I read points out that that sentence echoes Exodus 32 of the golden calf incident, which is interesting because Israel was liberated from Egypt and slavery in Egypt. By nothing that they did. God didn't look down and say, oh, I really like you. God rescued them and brought them into a covenant by grace and love that he placed upon them. He delivers them from slavery. He gives them the law at Mount Sinai, makes a covenant with them. Moses ascends to the mountain to meet with God. And what do the Israelites do? Exodus 32. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. I got to laugh. Really? You know when your kid does something wrong, you know what? Your kid, like really? That's my kid. Well, your son, your daughter. uh, Yeah, I don't want nothing to do with him right now. That is yours. You know what I mean? Moses says to him, go down your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They turned aside quickly. They turn aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and they're worshiping and sacrificing to it. And Galatians, he's saying, you're repeating the same error that the wilderness, the Israelites did in the wilderness by departing so quickly. Man, we just turned out back for a moment. Right after you were delivered and you're going back to that stuff. Now what, or or, or should I say, who are they quickly deserting? Look what it says, deserting deserting God himself look what it says I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him not simply religious beliefs it's not it's not simply five ways to make your life happier a desertion of the gospel is a desertion of God himself and of Christ the king of kings a desertion that word means to transfer allegiance it means that I've switched political parties. I've switched from the enemy, from this army to the enemy's army. It means a turncoat. A turncoat is really the idea. It's an abandoning. It's turning to a different side. From a personal relationship with God through faith and grace to now I'm going to switch that and now I'm going to do it by law. And you know what? It's impossible to forsake the gospel without forsaking God himself. That's what he's saying. The Galatians who had understood this justification, put it on the robes of Christ, are now going to the garbage can, taking out their old dirty rag clothes and put it back on. We sang about that a moment ago. Our own righteousness are but polluted garments, Isaiah 64, 6. I noticed it on the song. And that's what works-based religion is. If you're trying to work your way, earn your way, do the right thing in order to be accepted and loved by God, it's filthy rags. 
deserting him. Look, look what they're, they're not only deserting God, they're turning from grace. Deserting him who called you in the what? Grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Right? You, you, you were called by grace and now you're turning to a different gospel. Your call, which is the call of faith is, is, to Christ, is by what? This is right here, grace. It's by grace. Now, don't get this confused with gospel invitation, okay? We give the invitation, respond to the gospel. God is the one that does the calling. God is the one that gives life. And his call to faith in Christ is done because of grace. Not because of anything we've done. Verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father. We, we and Paul, would, if he was here, he would tell you, he, he, we didn't seek out rescue. But God in his grace planned it. But we didn't know we needed it. And it came from sheer grace, nothing we could have accomplished of ourselves. And when you take law and you take works and you take earning merit, things we do and add it to the gospel of grace in Christ, the result is not more of a vibrant, um, mature, robust gospel. It is a gross perversion and a totally different gospel. In fact, Paul here in verses 6 and 7 Verse 6, he says a different gospel. Verse 7, he says another one, different another one. Kind of the same, same understanding, but it's actually two different Greek words, just so you know. And it's interesting that he would use these words. Verse 6, when he says different, it means different in quality, different in character. Being rescued, being saved, being justified by adding works to, to Christ is a different in quality of the truth of the gospel and it's a false teaching. The second word, alos, means numerical difference. There can't be any good news of quality of character or quantity as if there's more than one from which the apostle Paul is preaching. There's only one good news. A salvation by works, a a rescue, a deliverance, forgiveness by something that I do and I merit I don't know about you, but that's not good news to me. Never going to make it. Tell you that right now. Never going to make it. I'm hopeless. Titus 3, 5. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There's nothing in us that merits salvation. It's by grace alone. We throw the word grace around, right? What does grace really mean? God's, it means God's favor toward us, the unworthy. Now, I want to be really clear. When, when the Bible talks about being unworthy, it doesn't mean we have no value. I, I've heard preachers say that, and, and I understand what they mean, but I also know someone that was in the audience, and you may be here today, thinking that, 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 that you have no value. That's not what it means. It means earning merit toward God's love. God created you, the Imago Dei, with dignity and value because you are his creation. But unworthy means, means more in a sense of undeserving, that grace is a gift, which means we don't owe anything. There's nothing in return we can give to God. The price for us is a free gift. The price to him was the life of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us, who died in our place. And therefore, grace to us is completely unmerited, but it was the cost of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the Bible's clear, clear. We don't deserve the grace of God. Romans, again, God demonstrated his love for us this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to him, God the Father, through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, so grace is, is no longer grace. Grace is no longer grace if there's any shred of needed merit. It's not grace anymore. And Paul calls mixing this law, this merit, this doing, I got to follow these commands for God to love and accept me, with the gospel, and he calls it a distortion. You see that? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him and called you uh, and turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another gospel, but um, there's some who trouble you and they distort the gospel. To distort the gospel. You can't mix law and grace. You lose everything. You lose the gospel. There is no other gospel. There is no other good news. Salvation is a free gift of God. And the word troubling is interesting. It means uh, disturbing, agitated, perplexity. And in the context, in, in, its, in its verb, it's a present tense in the Greek, which means it's ongoing. So it was going on at that moment. And you could almost hear it in the voice of the apostles just saying, this is going on. Stop. You came to faith in Christ, but you came to faith in Christ through grace. Stop turning to the law. The word distortion is reversing. So it means that they're they're turning the gospel. Let me try to explain this. He's agitated. There are some that are disturbing the church. They're they're agitating these new Christians by distorting, reversing the gospel, changing it, turning it upside down. Actually changing the order of the church, uh, of, of the gospel. Look what it says. In verses one. Through, through six, seven, we get to, it, it's God who accepts us and then we follow him. We're saved, we're delivered by the, by the death of Jesus Christ and therefore, we walk with him. They're distorting that. Man, they're, they're flipping it around. They're, they're using religious systems and, and, and certain works in order to be accepted and they're actually distorting, they're reversing the order of the gospel. And let me tell you, that makes for a very angry Apostle, look at verse 8. Those who are troubling you, those who are distorting the gospel, those who are turning it upside down, listen, if we or an angel from heaven, verse 8, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Just in case you didn't get it the first time, Verse 9, I said it again, I'm saying it now. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Whether someone comes and claims to be the angel Gabriel who shows up in a cave of Hira to give new revelation to a man named Muhammad for the Quran, or whether it's the angel Moroni who comes to Joseph Smith to give him new revelation, both of which is contrary to the gospel, Paul is clearly and without pretense saying, damned, hell-bound, damned gospel, accursed, anathema, final destruction, like in Exodus 22, God's devoted to destruction, punishment, and destruction will be handed out for those who preach a different gospel. Eternal damnation can't get any stronger than that. And it's not just them. The Judaizers, those who are adding to the gospel, law and merit. It's not just them. Look what he says. If me, if we, if I, the apostle Paul, change my mind, 
if an angel comes. It doesn't matter if another apostle comes. It's not just simply them. This is, this is universal. Anyone who distorts the essence of the gospel, damned, hell-bound. One commentator, Hedrickson, says this. Here, listen, this quote Hedrickson. Here, the storm is unleashed in all its fury. Paul, let him be anathema, is not a mere wish, but an effective invocation. The apostle, as Christ's fully authorized representative, is pronouncing the curse upon the Judaizers who are committing the terrible crime of calling the true gospel false and substituting the false and ruinously dangerous gospel for the true and saving one, end quote. Does your understanding of the gospel, does my understanding of the gospel determine our eternity? Yes. This is serious. We're not talking about issues of secondary things, mode of baptism, spiritual gifts. We're talking about a gross perversion of the gospel as what is called heresy or heretical. There's a difference between error and heresy, okay? I just want to share that with you. There's a difference between error and heresy, right? Error is simply maybe some bad theology, not biblically accurate. Maybe there are some differences between people. Paul's talking about heresy here, not error. He's not talking about just differences of opinions, but he's talking about the work and the person of Jesus Christ. The, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus would, would cause someone to, to, to turn from that would be heretical. The deity of Christ, the Trinity, things of that nature. To add salvation, excuse me, to add works to salvation that you need to do something in order to be saved is heretical. To say that Jesus is not the eternal word who became flesh, the second person of the Trinity, as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses say, is damnable. Heresy, according to the Apostle Paul in the Scripture. So, Let me illustrate that a little bit more. I want to be really clear. If you believe that infants should be baptized, if you believe in what you believe about spiritual gifts, I would believe, I believe that the scripture is clear that baptism should happen after conversion. Brothers and sisters that I know whom I love and they love me and they love Jesus, they believe differently. I would say they're in error, but they're my brothers and sisters. There are people that believe that the spiritual gifts, certain spiritual gifts, have ceased in the first century. I don't believe that. I would say they're in error. I believe that all gifts, uh, they're abused, but all gifts are for today. Be used properly. They would be in error, but they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Got a lot of Presbyterian friends whom I love dearly. A lot of secessionist friends that believe that ceased, the gifts ceased, I love them dearly. Here's the difference. If you believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, which is called baptismal regeneration. There are those out there. That's heretical. That's damnable. If you believe that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved, that's heretical. That's damnable. That's a different story. You're adding to the gospel. See the difference? One's error. I believe in error. You can hold to your truths. Uh, you know, what you believe the scriptures teach about secondary issues, cool. But once you step over that line and you're saying this is necessary for salvation, That's a whole nother realm. That's what Paul is talking about here. The apostle is astonished 
passionately agitated that the Galatian churches, after hearing the gospel from Paul, who got his authority, his commission, and his message of the gospel from the risen Jesus himself, that God rescues and justifies sinners by grace alone, not merit, by faith alone, or through faith alone, not the law, in Christ alone, is now telling them, listen, stand firm in the truth. Do not abandon Jesus and the gospel. Do not turn from the grace of God to law as a means of justification. And all those who are troubling you, let them go to hell. That's what he's saying. I want you to feel that. Second part. This will go faster. Yeah, I'm having trouble with this. Let's see if I can do it. The motive of the gospel. Look at verse 10 with me. Can you go on to number two, Joe? The second, um, the motive of the gospel on the the PowerPoint. Verse 10, for I am now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is what Martin Luther said about this. This is not preaching, the gospel that Paul's preaching, this is not preaching that gains favor from men and from the world. The world finds nothing more irritating, intolerable, than hearing its wisdom, righteousness, religion, and power condemned. For if we denounce men and all their efforts, it is inevitable that we quickly encounter bitter hatred, persecution, excommunication, condemnation, and execution. (laughs) To preach the one true gospel does not win friends, right, And, and influence people. And in fact, next time you're at work or you're at school or you're in your, with your neighborhood and you have a conversation about faith, try this in, your, in our <laughs> uh, culture of tolerance, pluralism, all roads lead to God, that any other message of the gospel is damnable by God. See how far that gets you. The apostle faced all kinds of hatred and persecution because of his sold-out life for the gospel and for Christ himself. He was willing to be persecuted. He was willing to face trouble. Why? It says it right here. Because he knew whose approval that really mattered. He's not seeking the approval of man, but of God. He's not trying to please man. His ultimate pleasure pleasing is he's a servant of Christ. That's what it says. They, they claim that Paul would say anything to anyone just trying to gain fame and favor of himself by changing the gospel. And Paul's like, look, I'm not buying that. There, there are times when there are times when false teachers need to be confronted, right? But we don't want to do that right away. Hey, how you doing? Now I'm going to share you about my faith. Oh, what you believe? You're damned. You're going to hell. Like, we don't start that way. And that's not what Paul is saying. Like, everyone, you know, he's, just, he's talking about a specific incident. But sometimes we have to stand up and maybe get a little fired up when there is damnable teaching going on. I was in Albany. I was at the palace watching the concert there with my wife. It was some years ago. I forgot who was playing. It was a Christian concert. And as I came out of the theater, I noticed somebody out front just handing out flyers. Everybody walking by grabbing a flyer. So, you know me, I got to find out what's going on. So I go up there and I grab a flyer. As I turn around, I open it up. It was from the cult, the 12 tribes. You ever heard of them? They're, they're in Cooksocket in Greene County. I did a paper on them when I was in Bible school, so I, I understood them a little bit better. And I looked at him like, man, this guy's here at a Christian concert handing out this stuff. So I did what anybody would do. I stood next to him. And as he's handing out flyers, I'm saying, he's a cult member. That's garbage. Don't listen to that stuff. He's a cult. They're a cult. And he's looking at me like, get away from me, guy. I'm trying to hand his guy. And I just kept following up the street. My wife's like, will you leave him alone? I'm like, no. I'm, 
He's a cult. Don't take his material. <laughs> uh, I didn't get shot that day. That was good, but yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, no, you know, so, um, but we don't start out that way, right? But one of the principles I think that we can learn from this is who, whose pleasure do we seek, right? If we try to please ourselves or other people, then we're not living the gospel that we ought to be living, right? Pleasing God as our ultimate pleasure or pleasing others as our ultimate pleasure is mutually exclusive, right? We cannot follow our own glory, our own fame, our own objectives, our own ambitions, and follow Jesus Christ at the same time. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we believe here at King's Chapel that we ought to live missionally. We are, we are to live as missionaries in our culture. That we are called in to the gospel and then we are sent out with the gospel message. That's what we believe here. But if we're honest, can we just be honest for a moment? Um, let me give this to Ricky. If we can be honest just for a moment, the, the reason we're not sharing the gospel, the reason that we're not demonstrating the love and declaring it with words is often that we are caught up with how are others going to view me? right? How is this going to affect the way they see me? But, but I, I believe this is teaching us once we understand the truth of the gospel, we'll stop living for ourselves and we'll start living for God. I mean, just think about this for a minute. If the gospel announces that God is already pleased with us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we are rescued and loved and valued and accepted and forgiven, and he's pleased with us as he is with his own son, what would that do for us? It would free us from seeking the approval of others. Also, if we understand that a gospel that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ is damnable, but the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is life, why would we not want to warn people to live under that slavery of what others think of us is really hard. It is far better to be a slave of Christ than to be enslaved to human opinions. If, if Paul desired to want to be loved and liked, he would have stayed a Pharisee. They loved him that way. But no, he didn't, because he became a faithful Christian. Now, every time I mention this, I want to be careful. We're not talking about go out there and stop damning everybody, be a jerk, be obnoxious, you know, and just get in everybody's face. That's not what I'm saying. But deeply in love with Jesus, people will see the purpose of their life when they're deep in love with Jesus, that we are to, to, to live for the glory of God. That we have been called in to live on mission with God and making new disciples by introducing to them to Jesus, the giver of life, who is the gospel. Who, do you, who are you trying to please in life? It's not, that, it's not that having people like you is bad necessarily, right? You're like, oh, I want everyone to hate me. I'm just going to act like a jerk so no one likes me. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying ultimately, ultimately, my motivation ultimately, my drive ultimately is the pleasure and the greatness and the satisfaction of God himself. Let me say one more thing and we'll move on. We're going to end on the next point quickly. When I talk about mission, when I talk about when Paul is living on mission, his first missionary journey, second, third, they're living on mission, some people hear it, and you may be here today, some people hear it as, listen, you get saved, you have to go and share your faith. 
God commands you to go and share your faith. And what you see that is a burden. Oh, I gotta go share my faith. If that's you this morning, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. If it's a burden, if it's an addition, if it's the gospel plus sharing your faith which justifies you, you got it all wrong. The news that the grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and the idea that we share this great news with others should bring us joy, not a burden. We don't want to make it part of the law. You see, in the New Testament, when you read the New Testament, after Jesus rose from the dead, he sends his apostles out and empowers them by the Spirit to, to live on mission, demonstrating, declaring the good news. Turn from your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus. It's not this, we have to go, we have to go, we have to go. What you see is this radioactive bomb that explodes and, and it ripples effects of people coming to faith, not with death, but with life and joy. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John preached the gospel. The Jewish leaders rebuked them and commanded them, don't do it again. And they said, well, it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God. You be the judge. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The apostles in chapter 5 are beaten and flogged. They went on their way, it says, from the council rejoicing that they've been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. 1 Corinthians 9, woe to me, he says, if I don't preach the gospel. Paul is so deeply moved by the rescuing of Jesus, his mouth can't stop telling people about Jesus. It's sort of like this. So you said to me, listen, it's your duty. You're a married man. Since you're married, it is your duty. You have to go and kiss your wife. Don't tell me that. Tell me I get to, right? I want to. I get to. You don't have to share the gospel. You get to. You get to join God in his mission. It's not a good work so you can be justified. It is an explosion of life because of his great love for us, right? We get to, and that brings joy. Watching God work, watch God transform lives, watch God rescue brings joy to our souls. So lastly, number three, Revelation. Verses 11, 12. Now, the revelation of the gospel, what this section, and we're going to look more at this next week. I just got one thing to say about this. This autobiographical section in the epistle. What Paul is doing now, Paul is now going to get into his conversion, getting into his early uh, uh, Christian experience. Uh, he does this in Acts. And the purpose that Paul wants to tell them is not, look, this is, this is my itinerary. This is what happened. But he wants to show them how important it was to, to the churches that he had the authority and the message that came from God. He wants to give God glory in all of it. And Paul says, look at me at verse 11, that the gospel was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not some reflection. It's not some reasoning. It's not some thinking that some man made up, right? Paul said, I'm not trying to please people because people is not the one who gave me the gospel. It's not from man. Then he says, secondly, he says negatively, he did not receive it from any man. You see what it says there in verse 12. I did not receive it from any man. Then he states the positive, which is we'll rest and finish. I received it how? By the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the revelation. In part, I met him face to face. He gave it to me directly. He died. He rose again. And now he's saying there's no doubt the origin of the gospel, it comes from God himself. It's not something man made up. It's not something I made up. It's been revealed to me in Christ. The word revelation means disclosure. 
It was something that was hidden that now God has shown to us. The unveiling, like the book of Revelation, the unveiling of the risen Christ. The unveiling of the lamb who was dead, who is now on the throne. Uh, the unveiling of, of the fulfillment of God's sovereign purposes of the world, the book of Revelation. And I think the apostle Paul is saying, listen, this ain't about tradition. This ain't about what other apostles says. This is about what God has shown me. Give me two more minutes, and I want you to hear this really clear. The only way, okay, the only way, the only way, the only way that you and I can know God, the only way that you can know that you need a Savior, the only way that you can have a personal relationship with God is through revelation. No one is born with a clear understanding of who God is. We attempt to know God, religious teachers talk about their philosophies, their speculations about God. However, God chose to reveal himself not through human speculation, but divine revelation. God's not known by your human ability. He's known through self-disclosure. God has made himself known so we can comprehend. We can know him. We can communicate with him through his making himself known. Does that make sense? Right? You, you could hang out around me, you could observe me, you, could, you can see what I'm doing as subjective and very small. But God chose him, chose to reveal himself through the scripture, through ultimately Jesus Christ, and through the preaching of the gospel that we can know him, know ourselves as sinners, and know him who saved us from our sins. So let us end this way. Paul is affirming, listen, that his message is not his message, but God's message. That his gospel is not his gospel, but God's gospel. That his words are not his words, but God's words. And that the message is he redeems us, he rescues us from sin. He took our place on the cross. He died, our Savior, as a substitute, delivering us, risen from the dead, and it's received. This wonderful gift is grace. And can be received by faith in Christ alone. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned, justified freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So how will you respond this morning? Some of you are going to sing a song. Some of you will sing the song and you'll worship the risen king. Father, I come to you and boast of deeds I've done. I could boast of deeds I've done. In my pride, I've earned the favor of Christ one. But no. He alone pleads my acceptance. He alone, with all my works aside, I come, I come with empty hands. And some of you here this morning, if you know Christ, you have a relationship with Christ, you maybe have bought into some of this legalism stuff and you need to just empty your hands, sink to the Lord. It's all about you. You get all the glory. I bring you nothing. And I accept the free gift and remember that it's about grace. And some of you, you're going to sing that song today and the Spirit of God's going to awaken you this morning and you're going to recognize, I've been running on my own, doing my own thing, trying to justify myself. But I'm a sinner, and I need salvation. I need to be rescued. And we're going to sing that song. You're going to sing it for the first time, and you're going to say, I come at empty hands, and I cling to Christ, the risen King, who died on my behalf, who rose from the dead. I come with nothing, and then recognize that it's Christ who clings to us. Father, We want your glory 
to be seen. We want to praise and worship Jesus. We come with nothing. You came with everything. There's nothing we can give you because you have already done it. May we lay aside all the ways in which we want to justify ourselves and try to work and earn your love. We embrace the gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. May we repent well and may we receive this gift of salvation by your hand for your glory and our joy. Amen.